that we're the last country in the world to have browsing animals. So we're moving now towards building hospital paddocks, the multitude of end users. So we've got a bit of forestry happening. We've got plants that are both edible and medicinal. They're shade and shelter. They're good for bees, the birds. So pollen and nectar and for firewood. Ultimately, I think we'll get to probably a third of our farming operation will be in these multi-species trees, shrubs, grass areas. Today we're talking to Roger and Nikki Beattie. Roger is from a farming background of mixed sheep, beef and cropping in Seddon and then Kaikoura, who went shearing at a young age in the Chatham Islands. He had a contract to cull Pitt Island wild sheep and spent 15 years diving power. Nikki trained as a medical doctor, working as a GP for 15 years. Within her role as a medical doctor, Nikki recommended, where appropriate, the use of live foods in the diet in preference to pharmaceuticals. They have been married for 30 years. Roger introduces Nikki as his first wife and himself as a farmer's husband. Welcome along, Roger and Nikki. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Why don't we start with um, giving us a bit of a rundown on the farming enterprise? Well, we've got three farms all around Manx Peninsula and just outside Christchurch, and we run 5,500 stock units, um, organic sheep and beef. Uh, we were certified organic, actually, but we've decided to, to forget about that. There's too much bureaucracy mm. involved in doing the organic certification and we weren't managing to sell premium product so um but we still run under organic practices so we haven't actually changed anything anyway so we have a property in Manx Peninsula Wainui 1700 acres and then we have another at Adahua which is 870 and then a lifestyle block of 30 odd acres near a town it's hill country there's not a lot of flat. There's, there's a bit of flats at Idaho, but it's um, it keeps you fit. Plenty of up and down. And we've got eight k's of coastline at Wainui. So that was our first farm. And Roger was looking for a farm with coastline because he was in the fishing game at that stage and looking for aquaculture. Mm-hmm. So that's why we bought our first farm at Kai Vale. And, and tell us a bit about the animals you run because you're not running, you know, just... Typical crossbred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we started off um, with Pit Island Wild Sheep. I'd spent 17 years on the Chathams and one of the 18-month stints I had was culling wild sheep. And towards the end of that program, I thought, heck, I've culled 3,500 wild sheep and they're incredibly tough. None of them have got foot problems, no mouth problems, hardly any dags, no fly strike. And I thought, one day I'll farm these. Well, 15 years later, we bought a farm, and at the peak, we had about 3,500 put on wild sheep. And then we've bred up through the wild sheep, we've bred up what we call boheapies, and they were sheep that were bred by Ag Research, by David Scobie for short tails, bare bums, uh, low-cost, easy-care sheep. So we've now got about 2,500 of those and we're cutting down our wild sheep numbers. So I'd say we have got the lowest-cost, easiest-care sheep farming operation in the country. After visiting your place one of the Quorum Sense field days, I did come away from there wondering what you do with all your spare time because... <laughs> <laughs> there's, not, there's not a lot to do with those sheep. There's a lot of capital development work. I mean, mm. for instance, the guys have just sent through on a WhatsApp page what they're doing today, and we're putting in a brand new water system for you know a couple of big twenty five thousand liter tanks and all new pipe, new troughs. So I suppose that's the next thing. Not only do you have to worry about what you're going to do with all your spare time, that's what you can do with all your spare money. <laughs> well, we we're not running at a profit overall, but, I mean, we're running on a profit if you take out capital expenditure. So, look, there's always plenty to do. You know, you've never got enough subdivision, and we've done a lot of subdivision. 
you've never got enough troughs. Your paddocks are never productive enough or got enough variety of species in them. So, you know, but there's a lot of progress we have made. I mean, weeds are almost non-existent now, and that's a combination of, you know, Nikki spends a lot of time with other people as well, grubbing gorse. But, you know, thistles are less of a problem than they ever used to be. Um, we're improving pastures by direct drilling and ripping up, but there'll be less and less ripping up. The reality is we have actually quite a lot of other businesses that we run, which is why we needed easy care farming. If we farm conventionally, we couldn't do all the other things that we do. So one of the farms, for example, if we're going to Wainui, we do a drive-by at Ardahua and just do a quick muster. And drive in, drive out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's very little. I mean, we shear once a year, and then we really yard the animals mostly to go to the works or to wean, but there's no treatments given no inputs at all, and they're just given free access to kelp and salt by the troughs. And basically, it's stock man- you know, grazing management is how we do it, yeah. And this year, funnily enough, even though it's been really dry, we've never had so many fat lambs go off. And I think part of that is we've got better stock management, better subdivision, but another part of it is there's no worm bird. Mm. Because all the eggs have died. So, yeah, you'll be totally closed system. Do you feel like your genetics are improving? Well, we're not totally closed. We buy a a bit off, um, what's his name down at Harriet? Alan Richardson. Alan Richardson. Ah, yes. A couple of rams. Yeah, we've bought rams off him, but we're probably tending more towards our own as well. So... And our stock breeding program is not about choosing the best. It's about deselecting the worst. Yeah. Because I don't think that anyone's a good enough farmer to choose what a good animal is. But I think most farmers are good enough to say what they don't like. Mm. And our thinking is you if you can constantly be getting rid of the ones that are not performing, your sheep become less worse. So I think we have the least worst sheep in the country. <laughs> least worst. <laughs> That's a slogan if ever I heard one. Uh, and <laughs> it, it's not about natural selection because natural selection is not about survival of the fittest. Natural selection is about non-survival of the weakest because lots of fit ones breed but no unfit ones do. It's just man's come along thinking he's so clever and he can pick better animals, which is a bit arrogant, really. You know, wildebeests don't get picked by man. It's a natural deselection process. It's not a positive process. This is like uh, Ian Mitchell-Winnis. He says you've, you've got to play... Don't quote me on this, but something along the lines of you, you've got to be the predator a little bit with the, you know, we're really good in agriculture with keeping our weak ones going. You know, we've got the technology to make sure that they are treated and that they get the right nutrition and we are breeding these, yeah. I'll say it, weak ones into our system. And Ian Mitchell Innes says you've got to be a bit ruthless with your, you know, as in, in nature, they don't last. Probably most well, obvious in the dairy sector, I guess. Dairy cares that just well any high production yeah. system falls into the trap of worshipping at the altar of productivity. And as soon as you fall into that trap, you go, Oh well, there's some animals that are not performing, we need them to perform. You reach for the chemical container. As soon as you reach for the chemical container, you have lost. And so people like Gabe Brown are now working on the same principles that we're working on, not because of what we've said, and I'm not doing it because of what he said. We've come to the same conclusions by looking at it objectively. So over time, those who negatively deselect end up with less worse animals. 
And I would say our animals, if there's a scale of, say, zero to ten, five years ago we were probably out of five. My pickers, we're now at about an eight. The national flock's at about a three. But about the selection thing, um, I remember watching the wild sheep one time when we had a flock and the prime rams were fighting, you know, coming up for mating, obviously, and there was a rumpty old fellow that we'd been trying to catch and Roger was going to dog tuck him, but we hadn't been able to catch him. And he could see the prime rams fighting, so he was away off and he served all the ewes while they were fighting. <laughs> and he passed on his smart genes, yep. for sure. Wow. Work, work smarter, not yep. harder. I know, and that would happen in, in nature, you know. I mean, you, you depend, you know, because man is selecting for big shoulders or whatever, you know. Meat, whereas he's passed on his cunning genes. Yeah, they're boys. <laughs> That's how you do it. That's right. Well, you know, I took a photo the other day of one of our rams that we're keeping for breeding. And I looked at it and I thought, that's exactly what I saw at Pitt Island. And it's one of the things that struck me. The really good ram lambs that did really, really well they're shaped like a double wedge. They go from the hips, looking straight down on them, forward, ewes and lambs. And then they're also like a wedge, looking side on. And that's the way to have no lambing issues. No, yep. no, no. And they also have another thing, if they're doing really, really well, they'll come from their shoulders, from the, the neck, shoulders, and then about the middle of the back, they'll rise up. And they're where the best cups are. And the pit on wild sheep get sort of a guard here when they really well done younger lambs. And our bohipies have got the same type of thing happening as well. And we don't need to measure all of those objective measurement things we do. We, we need to spend a lot more time going, how well is this animal moving? Is it able to cart its carcass up the hill with the least amount of effort? And a classic example, my father used to breed stud Romneys. And when he gave up farming at 76, he sold most of his Romneys. I ended up buying a couple of hundred of them. And even though we'd had them on the farm for six weeks, no, sorry, six months. We ran them together with the bohipies, and you'd put the bohipies and the romneys in a paddock going up a hill, and it's a reasonably steep hill, and the bohipies five minutes up the top. The romneys, 10, 15 minutes later, are still panting halfway up the hill. Well, how much energy does an 80 kilo, 70 or 80-kilogram sheep use up to get to the top of the hill compared to a 50 to 60 kilo sheep that's fit and designed to move. And the efficiency of our sheep is really pretty incredible. If you do the maths on the numbers of um, the weight of the ewe and the weight of the weaned lambs, uh, there's a there's an efficiency figure that pops out of that. Yes. And our um, John King wrote about this in one of the um, Acres USA magazines, and our sheep, compared to the national flock, are 5% more efficient. So even, even by conventional numbers, mm. you're ahead of the game. Mm. Yeah. Because mm. we can run more sheep more easily than bigger sheep yes, in a smaller number because there's no dagging, no crutching, no tailing, no, no inoculation. Yeah, yeah labour inputs. <laughs> yeah. Labour inputs. Yeah. You know, it, it, for us it makes no difference whether we're running 1,000 sheep or 1,500. It just takes 30 seconds longer for them to go through the gate. <laughs> yeah. So I suppose with you both being quite busy people with you know multiple different things business wise, when you know, grazing management and obviously must be quite a 
logistical challenge between your different blocks. From a pasture management point of view, especially on hill, what are some of the key things you're looking for when you're shifting sheep? Or is it or is that quite an easy care management? Uh, or, or are you finding pasture management and grazing management's quite important? Well, put it this way, during during the spring, we're on at Atahua on once a day. And that's we've had that for a couple of years now. And that seems to work pretty well. Shifting once a day. Yeah, yep. shifting once a day. And that's for sheep. For cattle, they're generally more set-stocked. Well, not necessarily set-stocked, but not shifting as often. Because cows and calves are harder to shift than ewes and lambs. And the earlier you start shifting the lambs, what we've found is the easier it becomes. How early, Roger? Oh, before, the whilst the last ones are still lambing. I was about it's to about say, is it weeks. before or after tailing, but you probably don't tail. No, we don't, don't tail. tail. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. God, tailing is... What's that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tailing will go the way of mulesing yeah. over time. Just forget about it. Well, we don't tail dog. We're not allowed to tail dog dogs or cattle. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sheep, do they not feel pain? What about no. what about weaning? Uh, we wean, depending on the season. Um, we don't wean at a weight. We wean more about time. Well, ideally, we wean when they go to the works. <laughs> yeah, so like. generally, we wean at the first draft off to the works. So that's our time. So anything that doesn't go gets weaned. Gets weaned. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and then, big enough, yeah. Then if there are some late lambs, we will castrate the late lambs and leave them on the mothers. Do you scan? No, yeah. not yet. We may do. <laughs> Nikki's yeah. reluctant. Well, it's just it's the, the more handy. You see, you just you can just see that. When you, when you don't yard very often and you bring them in, you can see those sheep are looking at you. They're petrified. Yeah. It's stressful. And, you know, there's nothing like stress is a serious health issue for any animal, human or otherwise. And I just think the gains from scanning compared to the actual, well, the cost, the labour cost for a start, and uh, and and then the stress of, of yarding them, I, I, I really just... Uh, our sheep really don't get that stressed yarding, but you're still going to get bruising. Yeah. You know, yeah. we don't inoculate for a clostridial disease. Yep. It, it's, it's amazing, really. We bring animals in to clostridial disease, inject them, but the very fact of bringing them in causes the most of the diseases. Mm. Yes. Yeah. 100%. And exposure. And exposure. Yeah, well, you cr- so, it's overcrowding. You're just instantly bringing them in contact with each other. So yeah. I don't know. I, I, I mean, to me, I would debate whether we need to scan. We don't scan at the moment, and I think that's, you know. I guess the only reason I was asking that was like if you're trying to deselect late lemmas or something like that, well, whether it's a... It's physically quite possible to take out late lambs mm. yeah, we just if we wanted to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah we do. Um, and we do, we are doing more of that. <clears throat> um, and for the last couple of years, we've been tagging annual sheep, hoggets, whereas up until now, we've not um, culled on age. No. You know, if you've got a, very productive 10-year-old you, why not keep her? Mm. Classic example, one of the probably most efficient sheep that have ever been in New Zealand was a pet sheep we had called Lucy. And when she was about eight, she had twins, and she had a number of twins in her life, and she lived till about 15. And I can remember we weaned her two lambs. One was a male, one was a female. She weighed 45 kilograms, her ewe lamb weighed 45, and her ram lamb weighed 46. <laughs> I mean, as, as an efficiency rating, I mean, that's 100%. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
Name me another sheep that comes close to that. Yeah, Lucy. <laughs> Lucy was a great sheep. She was, she was a wild sheep. Mm. Is her line still going, you reckon? Oh, the, it will be out there. But, I mean, it, she's she's pretty much the same as all the wild sheep. You know, it's like, you know, they're a browsing animal and the bohipies are more a browsing animal as well. And if you, you know, they know that they'll sniff stuff before they eat it. So the way we farm in New Zealand a lot of the time is we put them in a paddock and we say, you're going to eat that. So the animals are going, it's it's a rush. It's like it's like five o'clock swill in the old pubs. You know, you've finished working up past four and you've got to get two jugs in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we wonder why we have beer, beer guts. But... And, so modern sheep farming is a bit like that, whereas we try and work beforehand because we're organic and the way we farm, we can't rescue stuff. If we light their wick, if we set the powder keg off, you can't turn it off. So we're always mindful that we don't want to overgraze. Sometimes we do, but if you do overgraze, you need to do it in periods rather than go in like my father used to do in Kaikoura. Yep. Yep. He'd want to rip up a paddock and he'd just leave the ewes in there until there was nothing left. If we did that, we'd create problems. So we're very mindful that how long are they going to stay in a paddock before we put them in Mm. and then when they need shifting, and it takes quite a while to train people up. Now, the people we've got working for us now are getting the hang of that. You know, some days, sometimes, depending on the time of year, it's a one-day thing. Other times it's two weeks, depending on the size of the mob and what you're going to do. But you generally shift them before you they need shifting. Yeah, you want to be shifting them. Two days before rather than ten minutes late. So yeah. I know I exaggerate a bit, but But yeah, generally if you get there and you're like, oh geez, these need a shift, then you're a couple of days late. Yeah. 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 Particularly yeah. if it's yeah. wetter. If it's drier and there's no worm burden, doesn't matter. I mean, we just earlier this week we sorted out a, a mob of 160 lambs. These are tail end ram lambs. <laughs> And we took them out of a paddock that was about as bare as this tablecloth. And I was shaking my head at Richard. And Richard said, I've had to do this, Roger. They were in that paddock last. And it looked like that paddock, the one to the right. And there was a little bit of a pick in it. So dry. And we were worried that we weren't going to get many. Well, a third of them went fat. And the biggest ones were over 40. So, you know, if it's dry... You can push them harder. Yep. That's a big thing. I mean, a lot of my hinds are like that, that there's some in our herd that they are great hinds, brilliant hinds, but the second you have a dry spell, when they've got a fawn at foot, they just melt like butter and you see the almost daily see them drop in condition. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the hinds we've got now, bigger than what would be considered good for industry average but when it gets dry and it gets hard they just truck on you can see their bags stay big and their asses stay big and they just take seem seemingly forever to lose that condition off their back yeah some of my older hinds you know 15 years old mm. but they're still in the mob because they can handle we don't deliberately try to make life hard for them but when the tough seasons when it does way, happen because it, yeah. it's out of our hands sometimes mm. They can really cope well when their fawns cope with it. And yeah, it's a good resilience factor into the system. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that fellow, was it Ian, was it Ian Mitchell that was saying that, that one of the things that you should look for is longevity mm. in your sheep? Number one trait. Yeah. And it is. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Mm. And cattle guys, anything different there? Uh, same policy. And. Uh, our cattle are getting certainly getting better, and we're building the numbers. Um, the size is staying probably pretty much the same. 
but we're getting our calves coming through better because the the process of not propping them up means that weaknesses are exposed earlier. So you can get rid of those. So you're never breeding from genetically poor stock. And your, your stock are genetically less inferior every generation. Mm. So we have Murray Gray. And actually, we, we did start with a very good herd because Roger's father was a stud breeder. In fact, he was the first fellow to bring them in. Well, the South your South dad South. brought the first Murray Grays in from mainland Australia. And he started off with Tamania cows. He bought the first lot of Tamania cows um, that they sold. So that's one of New Zealand's top Aberdeen Angus studs. So, And my father was a very good judge of stock. You know, he didn't do any breeding value stuff for anything. And we don't do any breeding value stuff. That's That will be seen in time as entrenched farmer error. Oh, yes. EVBs. <laughs> That's a big Is call. it EBVs or e- whatever it is? Yeah, pulling things apart. Well, you know, objectively trying to figure out what's a good thing. Yeah. And, hmm. and you know, I think Ian Mitchell Innes, it was his third thing that he talked about, is that the animal's got to look right. Mm. Got to move you know, well as well. My father would... Look at an animal. If the only thing he could see was the head, he could tell you all about the body. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He didn't no. need a pamphlet to tell him. He didn't no, need he a didn't pamphlet need to tell him. So the cattle are the I mean, we don't vaccinate. Or, I mean, if we didn't have to TB test the cattle, we wouldn't yard them at all apart from... Weaning. Weaning. Yeah. Yeah. So TB testing is the right pain for us because they never come in. Mm. So we have to. Oh no, it is quite that. good because oh, we get mark. To look at them. We oh yeah, we can mark. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And we have really quiet cattle. Yeah, we'll we'll curl on. Considering we don't handle them much, they're very quiet. Yeah, you would think hill yeah hill cattle mm. don't get seen or touched oh, much would wouldn't no. react well to being in the yard. So I guess that speaks oh, to no, both no. their their nutrition. And uh, their temperament, and and that's surviving on country that mostly has never had any fertilizer. Yeah. yeah, and they do well. Last year, I think it was last year. It might have been the year before. We had it must have been a good season because we had calves at foot about this time, and you know how cattle that are in really good nick. Particularly if they haven't got in calf, they get a bump right around their tail. Yep. Sort of that fat bump. Yeah. Well, all of our cows had that fat bump and they would still had six-month-old calves on them. Well, actually, the neighbour's son called them hippo cows. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were huge. Yeah. Where's but, that in the in the catalogue? Hippo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we we don't well we don't dog them or anything. So that, and also we would curl if anything had a bit of an attitude. Yeah, we, attitude. Curl it, yeah, that's the only thing we would mm. curl. For. Rams use attitudes yeah, 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 a big culling thing. Yes. Yeah, Roger's still here. Yeah, that's, yeah. Right. <laughs> that's right. Don't worry. He's, he's like that ram that just can't be caught. <laughs> the well, cunning. Yeah. Yeah. He's got the cunning. That's right. That's how he's he's like, like, Rommel, like Rommel, the desert fox. Oh. <laughs> so, guys, we've talked about cattle. We've talked about sheep. And we are certainly all about diversity of enterprise. What other animals you got going on down there? Uh, we've got Wecker, um, that will be a solid farming part of the New Zealand scene within the not-too-distant future. In what sense? What are we going to do? <clears throat> well, we've got a hat here as an example. That's a Wekawoo hat there. So that hat is the same price as the wild hat. One has a feather and one doesn't. <clears throat> they sell for... And, and most people buy a Wekawoo hat, oh. so... We're adding value. Well, you're not allowed to sell not allowed any s- part of a of a wick of a wick of a bird. Yeah. yeah. So we give it away. Yeah. Um, so we give yeah. the feather away. Yeah. And and I might have, I heard a whisper about eating wicker. Oh yeah, wicker is such good eating birds. Wow. Way tastier than um, chicken. 
runner when he went down the west coast said, you know, Wecker is much better than chicken. And he's absolutely right. Mm. So Would it be better than wood pigeon? I haven't tasted wood pigeon, but sort of a slightly like a tasty chicken or a bit of lamby sort of a slightly mutton birdie but not oily, you know. Um, they're a Moorish bird. Yes. Very, very tasty. If you go to a do on the Chathams where you, you're allowed to eat Wecker on the Chathams, if you go to a do and there's like crayfish, power, um, you know, there's all the Chatham Island food there and Wecker, the Wecker, doesn't matter how much is there, will be always gone. There's never any leftover. And that's whether it's just boiled and or cut into four generally and boiled or a, a lot of the time they'll they'll salt them and, and that's good too, really good. So you got on the wild thing, because it's another enterprise that you guys are operating from and it's another revenue stream from the sheep, which yeah. you know, most people don't even inquire into. There's more people now doing their own little niche things. But yeah. why don't you tell us a bit about... We've got some hats here, some wild hats. They're beautiful-looking hats. Tell us a bit about what started this wild thing and what's wild. Well, our wild sheep wool is completely the opposite to normal wool. Normal wool is like corrugated iron, very even, very long, very strong, Uh, and that has been designed that way so that it goes through a carding machine at 100 kilograms per hour. The wild sheep's wool has been designed by the sheep for the sheep. And that is that it's all over the place. It's got a helical crimp, so it's helical. The fibre is twisted and the fibre diameter goes in and out. And it's not a particularly strong fibre. So when you process it, um, or even before you process it, for the same weight of wool, it occupies a hell of a lot more airspace. And airspace is what makes stuff warm, not yep. the quality of the fibre itself or not the fibre itself. So we've mixed our wild sheep wool with merino for strength and a, a bit of nylon in our socks but not in this. And then we also put 25% possum in it for that luxurious feel. And it's going very well. We're we're now getting behind in our manufacturing, which is great. And everything's done in New Zealand. That's cool. Oh, it's very yeah, cool. There's yeah, because there's a lot of the pretty much all the top merino stuff that's all processed overseas now, which is so it is very hard to try and find locally made. But this product is so good now. We've got a range of products that we're doing. Um. So our socks are going nuts. We've now got five lots of hats. They're going nuts. We've got baby wear. When babies, when we sell them to people or give them to people who have got babies, with the hat on and the and the little blankets, their babies instantly become calm. This is just a such a common thing that they people sleep, tell us. They sleep well. Because it's natural. Totally natural products. Yep. Uh, well, it's never had any chemicals near it. That's the other thing because it's, it's actually organically scarred. It's very light. Yeah. yeah. It's really, really light. Like um, to get the same amount of warmth in a conventional hat, you've got to go double the weight. Yeah. So babies and dogs and cats have a much better appreciation of what is perfect. And you can get one of our blankets and another blanket and our dogs will always jump on our wild blankets and not on the other blanket. Yeah. And babies are much the same. Um, my puppy loves my wild socks. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he digs my wild socks out. <laughs> oh, oh, I suppose they're chewable as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so... Wild is hats, socks, blankets. It's now got me thinking about my blankets. Yeah. <laughs> What's um with sharing those, what are they like to share, these wild sheep? Oh, pretty good, yeah. <clears throat> they have a kilo of wool on them on average, which turns out to be half a kilo when it's scoured. So there's not a lot of wool. 
but we only need half the amount of wool. So it's all re- quite relative, isn't it? That, I think it, it, it is. I think it's fun for the shearers, though. I think they, it's a bit different. They've got to be mindful of the horns and the rams and the ram lambs. But um, they're—I mean—they're lighter, so that they're, they're easy to handle. But they've just got to be got to be careful with those horns. Well, there's nothing on the points. Okay, there's tails, but I mean we're moving more towards bohipies anyway for our most of our flock, and they've got nothing on the points. They've got no horns. I mean we'll have world records broken in our sheds in time because they're such fast shearing sheep. Yeah, because you used to shear, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. done a few three hundreds, <laughs> and. Um, I suppose we better not go past the eating experience with a wild sheep too. I, I, can't. I still, say, still yeah. remember that day up at your place oh, where we okay. had that lunch with the wild well, no, I've oh, never right. had anything like it. And yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, we, we did oh, the wild lamb for a while where I was hunting them in the wild yep. and then gutting them and then putting them in a chiller, cutting them in a refrigerated or a, a chilled container, taking them into a deer processing plant, but then... The guy who was running it, he went down to Dunedin and they closed the plant and turned it into a um, something else. Velvet. Velvet processing oh, plant. And right, also yeah. the, bu- the, oh, the bureaucracy the yes. was insane. Mm. But yes. the next move will be, and probably next year, we'll do wild, we'll rebrand our wild lamb and we'll probably get it done at Harris Meats in, Kaikoura, in Cheviot and we'll cart 80 to 100 at a time. And what we ended up with was not targeting restaurants. That's where we started. We'll target people directly. So we'll be consumer-ready product. And we've done enough of it now to know what cuts work, how big the animals need to be, um, what our what pricing works, and what story we've got to tell. So we there's a lot of stuff that we know how to make it work. And you don't need to have like a degree to work that stuff out, do you? Like for those that are listening, <clears throat> what's stopping you from creating your own market? Yeah, well, I worked in the meatworks for a while, so I understand meat probably better than most people. But, you know, branding and marketing is a big part of what we do, adding value to our products. So for, for a lot of farmers, if they're full-time farming... It's hard to get your head around doing the branding, marketing. Anything but the running. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so that's why traditionally New Zealanders have gone and formed cooperatives, which are good and bad depending on what you think. But we we haven't really encouraged, I mean it's happening more, but we haven't really encouraged people to develop brands from scratch. You know, and that's what we're doing. We're we've got our Blue Pearl, Iris Blue Pearl brand. We've got our Zelp and our Valere kelp brands. We've got wild lamb and wild um, wool brands. And you know, I mean, that's part of what we enjoy doing. But this adds value. Mm. You you say what your product's worth, not the other way around. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. You know. Um, and we're picking up customers like we wouldn't believe. You know, when we started off, it was a bit hard, but now we're going, actually, the processing can't keep up, which is a well, fantastic position to be in. Yeah, that's a, adds to that story, gives it a bit of a exclusive status as well, that if it's hard to come by and mm. uh, yeah. so I mean, it's kind of a strength. Well, yeah. what's happening now is Angela, who runs our... Um, our wool business. Um, when we started about two years ago, we spent five years going through the whole branding marketing thing, put a lot of time and effort and money into it. So we've been manufacturing and selling for about two years now. For a start, it was difficult. None of the people really wanted to deal with us, but we were persistent. And they were sort of trying not to be rude. So they reluctantly did stuff. Whereas right now, Angela picks up the phone, they're enthusiastic. Every single one of our 
manufacturers. And because we're ordering 50% more than last time, next time. So they've already figured out how to handle our difficult wool. So it's just doing more of it, which is great. What was the harder thing to master? Was it the marketing side of things or was it actually the process involved of how do you process this wool? I think both. Like we, we spent a lot of time with wool yarns in particular up in Wellington, getting them to process it. And for normal wool, you know, it processes at 100 kilograms an hour. That's the standard. Yep. That's when you see a prize for the best wool at the show, it's not wool that's good for the sheep, good for people. It's that it'll go through a carding machine flat out and won't block it. Our wool goes through a carding machine at 10 kilograms an hour. Yeah. It's been a huge educational process for everybody because it was difficult to handle, wasn't it? Yeah. But on a marketing side of things, because we've done a lot of it and I've deliberately made good friends of New Zealand's best marketing guy and branding guy, Brian Richards, and we spend an, an enormous amount of time Getting the big picture stuff and the detail right. It's got to be simple, but it's got to be authentic. And the bits that are complicated, you've got to try and simplify them. You know, so I've got a feel for it now, or we've got a feel for it on how you go about doing this. Mm. Um, but it it's not something you can just on a Friday, decide what you're going to do and on a Monday, implement. You know, anyone who thinks that branding and marketing and having a successful product wants to do that is dreaming. And the other thing when we started, the poor wool industry was on the slide, deteriorating, and, you know, when you first started five years ago, you'd be dealing with a few processes and then you we'd get busy with other things and then you pick it up six months later and, and then they've gone out of business. Oh, so right, even, even yeah. in the time that we were doing this, we, there was quite a lot of... Oh, look, COVID's been good for us. Yarns, as an example, had sort of ditched us, they're Wellington-based, but a lot of their work was overseas stuff. So or producing New Zealand products for the overseas tourists, and then suddenly that got hit, so... We were doing our processing or trying to get our processing done in Christchurch for a while, but it was too difficult for the guy doing it. Wild Earth Yarns, it was, it's just too difficult for him. And we went back to Wool Yarns and we said, oh, look, is there any chance that you guys could handle it? Yes, please, they said. <laughs> <laughs> and we've had a great relationship since. Well, there's always a positive somewhere, isn't there? Yeah, yeah there is. Right. Things change. Having that short chain as well, adds real resilience to the product, doesn't it? You've not got so many reliances on outside factors. Oh, well, we're dealing personally with the scar, with the carding people, with the people who are um, uh, <coughs> doing the yarn, with the people who are knitting the socks and the people who are knitting all our other garments. So we know them personally and we send them, you know, the people that are down in Dunedin, Otago Knitwear will send them socks and they just love it. Yeah. And the guy that does our socks, you know, we've sent him hats and stuff and, you know, people love to celebrate stuff they're involved with. Yeah, yeah once you get people engaged with the product oh, yeah. and the process... You yeah, want so raving a, fans, and we've got yeah. raving fans. Our online presence and, you know, Facebook and all that stuff that I don't really have much to do with, but Angela's on it. She'll mm. excitedly tell me we've just got, you know, 500 hits on something or other, you know, a promotion she's done, and it's like over my head, but she's ecstatic, and I'm trying to look enthusiastic. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like you know what she's doing. <laughs> but it's cool to have people on your team, you know, that, you know, obviously you can't be a master of everything, yeah. so no. if you've got yeah, someone yeah. who's into it and knows their stuff. Then well, when they do shows, they think that she owns the business. Now, that's the yeah. perfect thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect, perfect. yeah. yeah, no, yeah. We have got an awesome team. Now, we just added the pom-pom hat and the, and the 
So that's possum and they're handmade down in Fiordland, the possum. Yeah, we had, I don't know how many, Pom-poms. 50 or 100 of these made and we've got one left. Yeah. <laughs> just, last, just last week, so, yeah. Yeah, in a week we've sold out. Yeah, well, yeah. Look, like you see, customers, and what I'm seeing now is customers want to contribute to brands that are actually doing something, you know, like as in it's a contribution if it's food, they want to know that they're contributing to their own health. They want to know the story behind yeah. it. Yeah. Much like, I mean, hearing you guys share about the, what the babies, you know, how they behave. I mean, yeah. just got me thinking, like, Come wow, yeah. what are we, you know, we're, everything we wear is just plastic. Well, like, yeah. yeah it exactly. makes you wonder. Yeah. Well, made in New Zealand's going nuts in a real sense. And everyone we talk to who's in sort of similar businesses are all saying the same thing. Mm. And I think people want more authentic stuff. Yeah. COVID mm. has taught us one thing that, um, well, if it's taught us one thing, it's that we've had time to reflect and we've had time to go, well, no, I don't want to buy 10 cheap things. I want to buy one good thing. And buy local. Yeah, it's been a great, a lot of support mm. for local. I mean, I certainly was aiming to do that, buying things. Mm. So that's been really good. Yeah, we're in a much stronger business uh, position now since COVID than we were before, even though our Blue Pearl business, which was our biggest business, has only done 20% of what it was doing. So we're very pleased Australia's opened up. So we've just got, it's, it's made us concentrate on our farming operation. We've found efficiencies where we didn't think they could be found. We've got productivity where we didn't think we could find productivity. And our wool business and our kelp business have both gone, which is great. The whole pitch is all just yeah. adding up and accelerating. That's really cool. I suppose um, we touched on it briefly with workers or talking about workers before we got talking about how delicious they are. But <laughs> you guys are doing a lot, especially with your system, conservation is a massive part of that and you've got some pretty cool projects on the go at the moment that you were telling us about before. We better touch on that. It's the Kakariki. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh well I mean it's Roger's thing. The well Kakariki are the only bird that you can buy and sell if you've got a permit. Mm-hmm. So and and if you have a look on Doc's website, what they say about Kakariki is that they say that the Kakariki have been saved on many islands by private breeders breeding them up and then releasing them, which is fantastic. But we should apply that to a whole lot of birds. I mean, for things like weka, where you need to keep them in like quarter-acre reserves in order to get them to breed, we should be encouraging that because they've got, you know, I've got a, a, a list of 26 reasons why we should be farming weka. And, you know, they'll eat anything. They're an omnivore. Yep. Um, yeah, do they? They eat slugs, don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah so I mean, that's like the big agricultural problem yeah. we need to solve oh. is slugs. And grass grub, they're fantastic at yeah. that. And the thing is well, that, they, unlike a hen that would scratch, they just literally target heck. Well, they were taken to the Chathams in 1905 from Canterbury, six pair, so 12 birds, for grass grub control. Hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons to to feed farming weka. And from an economic point of view, you can graze a hell of a lot of weka to the hectare. Um, yeah. So I've I've done the numbers. I'm seeing mobs with weka, put <laughs> on sheep. I've done, the num- I've done the numbers on that. How do you muster it? And it's, compar- yeah, yeah. it's comparable to dairy farming. Yep. Okay. And you can you can incorporate how it do, with how do, you, how do you milk a wicker? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> milk it for the dollars. <laughs> you milk it for the You'll dollars. <laughs> well, we've had we've our wicker wick away. <laughs> our best pair had seventeen chicks in a year. Well, there's no other commercial animal in New Zealand that has that number of chicks. Yeah. Um, and they all survived. And but we we've often had them breeding five times in a year. 
Mm. So, so actually we're up and out, we've got a batch up on the sounds and uh, the pair that live underneath the house, um, <laughs> Steve, I'm not too sure what his wife's name is, but yeah, they, they're prolific <laughs> breeders and every time we go up there they've they've always got three or four yeah. on the yeah. go and yeah, yeah, yeah they, they do very well. So yeah. Cool. Mm. yeah, And, you know, talking about conservation stuff, we're, <clears throat> we set up New Zealand's first large predator-proof reserve on over at Wainui in 1994. And one of the things that we found out of that was that when you fence off and you get rid of sheep and cattle in particular, the native that was there, the seeds and stuff just come away. And out of that, we figured that the the sheep and cattle eat a lot of very palatable, very good quality um, shrubs like Mahoi, Whiteywood, um, Caprosmas, and Hebets, you know, Five Finger, um, Wineberry. They're all really, really palatable. And they're actually better than things like Tagasasti, Tree Lucerne, and, you know, Saltbush and all that sort of thing. And the reason we have those species is that for most of New Zealand's existence, we haven't had animals that eat them. So we're the last country in the world to have browsing animals. So we're moving now towards building hospital paddocks that are, um, you know, the multitude of end users. So we've got a bit of forestry happening. We've got plants that are both edible and medicinal. They're shade and shelter. They're good for bees the birds, um, so pollen and nectar, and, you know, for firewood. So ultimately I think we'll get to probably a third of our farming operation will be in these multi-species trees, shrubs, grass areas. And next week we're doing, we're putting on native seeds, tagasasti, and yeah. some some yarrow and other clovers and herbs onto quite steep sunny faces that we've been planting for about five years now and is about probably a third covered and it's really hard dry country. And if you compare where we've planted and we graze it every six months, all the underrunners are repairing. The grass grows long. The animals do really well on it. Yet right next door on our place where we conventionally graze it, it's like a billiard table. Mm. It's eroding. So what we're heading up to here is that those multi-species things that are good for animal health and good for animal production and good for the land is where we're heading to. Mm. Wow. It's very exciting. Do you, do you see the day where you'll go to the point where like, the whole farm will be like that or is it really just strictly I've, in blocks? To It could be the whole farm, but uh, I, hard to manage. I can envisage a quarter to a third. It, it involves a lot of fencing. Yep. Um, it, hey, every paddock could be the same. It, it's a bit difficult to put a an implement through to sow a paddock if it's got a tree every 20 metres. Mm. Imagine trying mm. to get the wicker out. <laughs> <laughs> Up in the trees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, it's, um, yeah, amazing to see what you two get up to. Like it's, I don't know how you, you get enough hours in the day to do what you do and it has been a real pleasure, you know, been hanging out with you guys a bit over the last few years and mm. growing with you and it's really inspiring. I'm sure you've inspired lots of people. Well, it's relaxed simplicity, really. You know, the more things you've got on, the simpler you've got to make everything else. And you being, you know, it seems to be innovations in your blood. So to be able to do all those things, you need to be able to do it simply right. Well, if it gets complicated, you get stressed. You know, I'm not thinking about what we need to do next with our sheep and cattle. We need to shift them. <laughs> but that's easy. That's pleasurable. Yeah, that's like we need fun. to but sell that's like, some. That's like the fun side of farming, well, isn't it? You go out there. And... We need to sell some. We've, yeah. Next week, there's some sheep going. We're not sure what date. 
we've already marked the ones that are going. So that'll be bring them in, make some money. Well, that's quite pleasurable. I like yeah. it, man, taking yeah. the, the complication out of, I mean, it seems to be just in that sentence there, painted the agricultural industry. It's yeah. really complicated. Yeah, keep and it you simple. Said it's, it's stressful. Yeah, yeah it's simple. Yeah. Well, our, our traditional people, vets, um, the chemical suppliers like PG Wrightsons and Farmlands, and our farming magazines make an enormous amount of money out of selling chemicals to farmers. Mm. They have a vested interest in having poor stock. You know, vets are not in the animal health business. They're animal in the wellness industry. The, mm. They're in the unwellness business. We're in the animal health business. Mm. You know, when you get a flyer from the vet, and we get them quite often, like every farmer does, and often there's no vet advice. It's 30 things you can buy from the vet. And they're all chemicals. Mm-hmm. They're all poisons. Yep. They're all designed to kill something. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, that's all. And I suppose, again, the, the big one is that value that's coming out of the land is going out the gate into someone else's pocket, which is ultimately that's True. what we're trying to get away from entirely. So. I guess it's probably a good point. We better try and wrap things up before we run out of time again. Yes. Um, we're definitely, I think, going to have to get you either both back or separately to go deeper into some of these cool projects that you've got going on and all these many ideas that you have before breakfast and <laughs> drill, drill a bit deeper. But for now, one of the last questions we always ask people on this podcast is what's your, and I think you just answered it in the last five minutes, is what's that piece of advice for people starting out or going down a, reg, a more regenerative path or working closer with nature? The chemical habit. Sorry, I just repeat that for me, Roger. Kick the chemical habit. Mm. <laughs> and and Nikki, I want to hear from you as well. Well, I think you just keep it simple. I mean, it's the, the most concern I have now is trying to, Persuade them that we don't need to scan. Mm. <laughs> sorry, you know, scan sorry, our I, animals. I, I, sorry, I brought that up. Now. <laughs> <laughs> because I, you're just adding another layer of complication. It's unnecessary. We we cull if they haven't had a lamb when we bring them in to wean. So uh, well, we were only going to scan the cattle because we've got someone who wants someone to buy us to in scan calf. Them. Yeah, I know. Uh, two-year-old heifers. Yeah, and they're too fat to be able to tell. Right. <laughs> exactly. But, but I think, oh, yeah, it's just simplicity and, and just oh, we just get so hung up on, I mean, it's the same, you know, I've got a medical background, so I keep on, you know, it, uh, instantly uh, I've got a headache. What's caused it? Give me something to fix it, you know, and, and, and five minutes I've got a headache. And it's like, well, go and have a glass of water and... Think about it tomorrow, you know. You don't have to look at things and instantly fix them necessarily. Slow down. Well, I mean, for you guys, you've got so much on that would make most people's heads spins. And I guess, like, your life's pretty complicated, Jono, with all the things you've got on the ear. And same with myself. And, yeah, I suppose that you're probably the two most relaxed-looking people in the room right now. So uh, it speaks a lot to, obviously, how well you've set up, how you operate. So That's glad it is. It is getting less stressful. (laughs) And because it is hard to start with. I mean, everything's hard to start when you're changing or moving. Starting something new, but yeah, no, it's nice to look back and, and realize that you know it has things have worked just and it's getting, yeah, as you say, it's getting simpler. Apart from he's got some new projects he wants to do, that'll never end, so, though. No. There's always going to be, now he's thinking, so, yeah, thanks, guys. It's been great. No, it's yeah, awesome. Thanks we... to Quorum Sense because it is an awesome forum. Yeah, so pleased. Yeah, don't to stop. be part of it, yeah. Well done, you guys. It's great. Mm. Thank you. No, it's c- certainly a massive privilege to have you uh, come down the road finally. And mm. so, yeah, we really appreciate your time because you're very busy people. And yeah, appreciate your sharing. So, thank Thanks, you very much. Well, it's great. Thanks. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. 
Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions, or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.